Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning and welcome to CounterPoints. I'm Emily Drushinsky, joined today from the West Coast uh, at a very early hour by my co-host, Ryan Grimm, who's in the middle of a book tour for his fantastic new book, which is out this week. Ryan, how's it going? It's funny being out here in Los Angeles. It is such a failed experiment. <laughs> in? Like the cars just don't move. It, it, it's hilarious in just, in just everything. I mean, the weather is absolutely wonderful, but I think I spent more time just sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic yesterday than doing anything else. Uh, I, I everything thought you were about is to just say, a one-story house. Yeah, it was a failed amazing. experiment in democratic socialism. I thought we had you for well, just a moment. Let, let's go with that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. Well, you have been busy on, uh, for example, CNN. We're going to play a clip of that. Your uh, book has made news uh, across the media. There's a lot to talk about. And actually, as we have been discussing, uh, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to our first story today, which is Israel. So we're going to get to some of the reports from your book as we discuss the news out of Israel this morning. We're going to talk about Vladimir Putin meeting with the Saudis and the UAE today. That's huge news, obviously, has big implications. You'll notice that we're almost in an American election year. Uh, so there's probably some important details to get to when it comes to those negotiations, which are supposed to be about oil. They're going to be about Israel and Ukraine as well, according to spokesman 
for Putin. We're going to talk about what Ryan has dubbed a shallow fake. Uh, not a deep fake, but a shallow <laughs> fake as it relates to his reporting on Imran Khan uh, with his colleague Murtaza Hussein over at The Intercept. Tommy Tuberville, senator from Alabama, has officially dropped his hold on military nominations. So that's a, been going since March. Huge news on the Hill, and there's a lot to talk about there too. We're going to be talking about uh, the news that came out just yesterday that House Republicans, they don't really have much going on, of course. You know, there's nothing to do. They don't have to fund the government. Uh, but they will be starting their impeachment inquiry formally next week. Um, we'll talk about what it means that it's going to be formally open. There's certainly a lot to deal with when it comes to Hunter Biden. There's no shortage uh, of potential avenues for investigation. We're also excited to talk to Stuart Reed, who's the author of a new book called The Lumumba Plot, about the CIA's role in the assassination of Lumumba. If you don't know this story, please stick around and watch the interview because Stuart Reed's book is, is so interesting and important and relevant now. Ryan, we should get to the news. Let's do it. Yeah, so right. since, since these hostages, since some of the hostages have been released, they've been you know pressing hard to meet with Netanyahu's war cabinet. And Netanyahu finally agreed to meet with him yesterday. And it sounds like uh, there were fireworks. Yeah, let's put the first element up on the screen. I've actually, in my notes, bolded some of the key quotes from these meetings. This is an article that we're reading from, from the Times of Israel yesterday. Just the headline says so much. Chaos and yelling, freed hostages, family members clash with Netanyahu in meeting. So a markedly tense meeting, the Times says, was held Tuesday between a group of recently released hostages as well as family members of those still in Gaza and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as well as other members of the war cabinet. Now, uh, one interesting detail that the Times of Israel is reporting is Netanyahu showed up late for the meeting. So they were supposed to start at 3 p.m. and Netanyahu and people showed up at 3.45 p.m. And the quote is, they let us get mad from a source and fight amongst ourselves. I left in the middle. It's not acceptable. As Ryan said, uh, they have been demanding this for a long time. Um, this came after on the heels of all of those demands. Uh, some of the audio from the meeting leaked. Uh, Netanyahu could be heard telling the families, as the Times says, quote, there's no possibility right now to bring everyone home. Can anyone really imagine that if that was an option, anyone would refuse it? Uh, he also said that they are, that he, he said something to the extent of the, these are demands that even you wouldn't take. Uh, that's a, a Netanyahu. I'm paraphrasing him there. Uh, but that's, yeah, he said, basically, you know, even you, the people who are former hostages or whose family is still held hostage or recently released hostages, even you wouldn't take this deal. Um, the, the numbers, by the way, of, of hostages are also, I mean, we're now, how many have been released? About 105, I think, have been released. Uh, 105 civilians released from Hamas captivity. That's 83 Israelis, 23 Thai nationals, and one Filipino. Uh, so they think right now about 138 hostages remain in Gaza, including around 20 women. One other statement I want to read before I get your thoughts on this, Ryan. Uh, this is from more of the leaked audio. Uh, and it was a recording actually aired by Channel 12. Quote, I was there. I know how hard it is. It's hard in captivity every day. You don't know. She says, you have no idea what you're doing there. And I know the conditions they're holding the men in are worse, worse for the women. Another one went and talked about sexual abuse. And then another said, quote, you have no idea what's even going on there at all. You claim that you have intelligent, but intelligence, but the fact is we were bombed huge, hugely consequential meeting for Netanyahu, don't you think, Ryan? Yeah, I thought 
I thought that in particular was quite striking. Uh, because as the ceasefire went on, you know, every day uh, there would be, you know, a, a trickle of hostages released. And you can only imagine from the Israeli family's perspective how, you know, what that must be like. You're, you're just holding your breath, hoping that, you know, in the next release will be your your love, some of your loved ones or all of your loved ones. And it, as a day goes by and, you know, your family members are not in that, then you're praying that the ceasefire goes so that there's another day. So you, so this kind of cruel lottery can continue to unfold where you're, you're hoping that, uh, hoping against hope that eventually that they'll be released. And those Israeli families are some of the people that I thought about first when Israel resumed the bombing, because that much must have been just such a crushing blow because, you know, that, that hope that the next day their family might come home is, is dashed. Uh, by the resumption of the the bombing and the and the end of these talks, and then to find out from these hostages that they were getting pounded by bombs the entire time or a significant amount of the time as well, uh, is is that much more poignant? And one of the hostages told Netanyahu, uh, "Hamas slept through your airstrikes. Yes, like they 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 kept us awake at night. They rattled us, but they just slept through it. They mean they mean nothing to you, which." Uh, that gets in then to this question of negotiations. Netanyahu hasn't said what, what Hamas is demanding, you know, in exchange for this. Hamas has uh, floated, you know, a permanent ceasefire in exchange for release of the hostages. I suspect that he's wrong and that the, the families would actually uh, agree to that. What, uh, what's your, what was your read on it? Yeah, I mean, especially because the Biden administration is now pressuring Netanyahu reportedly, saying that their target for the end of the mm -hmm. sort of assault on Gaza is the beginning of the new year. So that's a matter of weeks. And as this these numbers show, there's still a lot of hostages in Gaza. So if Netanyahu's uh, saying that his primary goal here is, you know, to eradicate Hamas and get back all of these hostages, and Israeli media is blanketing the airwaves with the uh, th these quotes and in leaked audio, I mean, something as uh, visceral as the leaked audio of people being unhappy with Netanyahu, questioning the strategy of their own government. Again, it gets to something, this is a point I think is excellent that you make all of the time. It's it's actually, you know, criticism of Netanyahu and of the Israeli government uh, is often much more pitched in Israel from <laughs> either the right or from the left uh, than you're sort of allowed to operate within the kind of boundaries in the United States. And that's important for Netanyahu as even the, the U.S., if the U.S., you know, we talked about this last week, President Biden, uh, at least from his his uh, statements says that he's been sort of taking public stances that allow him to negotiate with Netanyahu privately. So if he is trying to uh, end the conflict earlier than the Israeli government would like to, and you have hostages questioning the strategy and that being blanketed on is Israeli media, that's a huge, I mean, obviously a huge problem for Netanyahu, who is, who is already under a huge amount of pressure to answer questions about how the attack, how the security was breached on October 7th in the first place. And he's he's cross-pressured, like you say, and there might be, apparently, and apparently there is kind of more pressure uh, coming from the, the wing of the Israeli public that that wants vengeance. And Netanyahu seems to be just ex exploiting that anger in order to not save his political career because he might be finished, but just extend it. He's just living to fight another day. He also, 
making the situation that much more bizarre has these corruption charges hanging over his head so that if he when he if and when he ever does leave office he has to confront those corruption charges and so it he has this extra incentive to just do whatever he can kind of take a, a step forward day by day and the number one song and this is just an indication into how much kind of uh, thirst there is for vengeance right now among the Israeli public the number one have you seen this the number one rap song is this like insane like genocidal hip hip hop song that even by the end of the song is like calling for like uh, Bella Hadid to get wiped out it's like uh, people can kind of Google it and find this song. I would you can find like a, a rough translation of it, but it's just wild. And, and it's but it's a it's a real window into kind of the, the politics on the ground and and what what Netanyahu was dealing with as the ceasefire was going on. If you remember, uh, Ben Gavir, I mean, uh, I believe Smotrich as well were both hinting like if if this war doesn't resume soon, um, that we, you know we're going to bring the government down. Uh, you had some of his right-wing uh, cabinet members at the very beginning saying, uh, we have to not, uh, what, what did he say? We have to not consider over much the the, the uh, life of the hostages. We have to be very brutal in our calculations here. It's unfortunate, but we're just going to have to, um, you know, they they will also be kind of collateral damage in this in this uh, bombing campaign against Hamas, which has now picked up with, with a, a, a renewed ferocity. Yeah. And I don't think anybody would make the argument, of course, that Netanyahu was in some sort of like easy position either before October 7th or after politically, uh, practically. I mean, no matter what, it's a difficult situation, but nobody is happy with him. And, and for very good reasons, right. he's basically lost public support. And that's uh, in, in so many ways his own fault. And when you're losing public support, I mean, even the Israeli left was upset. Some parts of the Israeli left were upset with talk that there was going to be an indefinite ceasefire um, and, and were you know interested in what Ben Gavir had been saying about bringing down the government yeah. because they were so outraged by the way Netanyahu has handled the war uh, and by how negotiations have gone. And public opinion is just so crucial. Public support in Israel and in the West is so crucial. Uh, and th this is not helpful, obviously. Right. And Netanyahu's uh, been in power, you know, basically since the 1990s with a couple of breaks. And he's been able to basically en enact his idea about how to handle the uh, the occupation and he has consistently said you know i'm the guy who can prevent a palestinian state from forming and what i will do instead is you know, divide the palestinians and i will manage the conflict and and we will kind of very slowly uh, de facto and then eventually legally and if it well quote unquote legally and annex more and more palestinian land like and that you can do that and be secure at the same time. That was his promise to the Israeli public. He's had an opportunity to kind of enact that vision, and you know we've seen it, um, you know, blow up, blow up in his face, uh, which is why you know, you're seeing so much blowback from him, and now you're seeing so much of it um, in kind of blow blowback at the, the Palestinian population. Should we talk about uh, the the way that it's kind of uh, unfolding in the Western press with this kind of Fascinating Jake Tapper interview. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Yeah, we should definitely move on to this clip from CNN. You, you see Jake Tapper pressing uh, a representative from Israel actually on tragedy that happened to a CNN producer. Let's roll this thought. The IDF really has done everything that is humanly possible to try to safeguard innocent civilians. It's very hard to believe that, especially on a day when one of our producers lost nine members of his family, nine members of his family who were not members of Hamas, not members of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, not members of any group, just nine people just trying to live their lives. First of all, I, I extend my sorrow to him and my sympathies. But if I saw your report correctly, and, and please correct me if I say something wrong, that happened in northern Gaza? Uh, in Gaza City, where a month ago we already asked all the civilians to leave. And most of them did. If there was like 1,200,000 people there, there was only a, a couple of tens of thousands left. And one has to ask, yes, they had an ample opportunity to leave. I'm, I'm, I don't know what happened. I don't have the specific circumstances. I know there's deadly combat going on now in the north, still between these IDF and, 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 and Hamas terrorists, yes? And we don't want to see anyone caught up in the crossfire, but why didn't they heed the advice and oh, you leave can't blame, the area? You, you had, can't blame them. There's now I fighting, don't blame them. But you can't, there's fighting in the South now. Where, where are, I mean, I've been asking this since October 7th. Where are these people supposed to go? The point about fighting in the South is absolutely critical there, Ryan. Yeah, and I think, you know, let's assume, let, let's imagine a world in which the IDF had given, you know, ample warning, had provided genuine safe corridors for, for passage, uh, had, had, had provided um, places for people to go where they could guarantee that they would be safe and that, you know, you know, humanitarian, and that their humanitarian needs would be met and that they guaranteed that once this was over, uh, they would have the right to return to their homes. Uh, in that situation, you could, you could say, look, people who didn't take that warning um, we're taking on some serious risk. 
but none of those conditions uh, were were met. Uh, they, you know, the, is, is Israeli, the Israelis did not offer a safe corridors. Those those corridors were often often struck themselves. Uh, they did not offer kind of safe places where they could go. They they've bombed kind of UN places. They've they've been bombing Khan Yunus in the and the Rafah crossing. You know, since the very beginning, these are the places in the south where they've told people to go. Everyone in Gaza knows somebody who evacuated the north, went to the south, and was either killed on the way or or killed in the south. And they also have, are not provide you know providing for the humanitarian needs of people in, in these uh, places. They are instead making sure that the civilian infrastructure has been basically you know eradicated so that you know sewage treatment uh, is is non-existent. Uh, disease is you know just just is rampant. Uh, you know if they're lucky, a hundred trucks with uh, humanitarian supplies are getting in on it on a daily basis for two for two million people, uh, cutting off water, uh, you know taking the already low calorie counts you know significantly down. And so you can imagine why in that situation people might say, if those are all of the options, we're just going to try to hunker down right here. And it, I thought it was interesting. I'm curious for your take on this that he did he. The IDF spokesperson there sort of seemed to forget that he's talking to a Western audience. Like his original answer, I, my, my condolences, I'm deeply sorry for this, good. The second answer might be better for a, uh, an Israeli audience, but not for an American audience. The second answer of, well, why were they there? This it kind of sounds like their, fart, their fault. And it, it lands, you can see how poorly it lands uh, with Jake Tapper there. You know, it, it's interesting because there is truth that you know Israel provides warnings, has provided warnings in the in the past, but there's also in this conflict been proof that that's not happened. And in fact, we've seen the Israeli government concede in cer at certain points that the, it, it hasn't happened, and you know that and, and actually defend uh, that it hasn't happened. We've we've seen obviously bombings in the south. So uh, it's uh, you know to your point, Ryan. Even if you're you're not in front of a Western audience, I mean, I don't know what else he could have said there. To be honest, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what what else there is um, other than saying you know what. We've heard from Netanyahu and others that this is the the terrible cost. You know, when we heard early in the conflict that this is, you know, they were invoking Dresden um, and other just awful things. Um, that's you. Know, seems to me like the only honest defense that you can offer because nothing else is especially persuasive uh, in light of that evidence. Uh, you know, we're we're what two months in now. Um, th these right. answers are not quite cutting it in the West, that's for sure, to your point. Um, and, you know, maybe it's even more effective for them, sadly, to make the argument that they were making earlier. Maybe that's, you know, maybe people will believe that they actually believe it. Uh, because I, I don't think it's believable when you say things like, you know, the, 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 it, was, it was in the North, right? I mean, that just, it doesn't cut it anymore. So, no, I agree with you. And yeah. I think we should, let's roll this. This is the first of uh, two Aaron Burnett clips we'll play from CNN in this segment. One will actually feature Ryan himself, but this is with, of course, um, Israeli army spokesman Jonathan Conricus on CNN talking about the ratio of civilian casualties. So that's two civilians for every terrorist. Can you confirm that? Yeah, I can confirm the report uh, and I can say that uh, if that is true, and I think that our numbers will um, be corroborated, if you compare though that ratio to any other conflict in urban terrain between a military and a terrorist 
organization using civilians as their human shield and embedded in the civilian population, you will find that that ratio is tremendous, tremendously positive and perhaps unique in the world. Uh, I understand that there are civilian casualties and I understand that footage and coverage goes towards emotions uh, and to, to cover those civilian casualties. But what I want to say is that we will get those figures out and they will be official and on record by the IDF with the okay. name behind it. And then we will be able to say uh, and to back up afterwards with names and numbers that we are indeed targeting the terrorists. We are not after the civilians. Okay, so what he just said was important because if you look at the New York Times, uh, and we talked about this last week, tabulated recently, the ratio, um, and this is from Hamas numbers, and they're using sort of like the they're using UN numbers as well. And I understand people have concerns about the numbers, uh, but women and children make up 69% of the deaths in the 2023 war, but 41% of 2021 fighting, 38% of the 2014 war and 39% of the 0809 war. So by these numbers, and again, you know, I, I look forward to the IDF's numbers because I think it is helpful to be able to compare the data. Um, but Ryan, to your point, these numbers could even be underestimating. You know, there's an argument that Israel seems to imply, uh, repeatedly implies that they're overestimating the level of death. Uh, but in some cases, there's been an argument they're, they're actually underestimating it. Uh, so we should have numbers to compare. If we're not supposed to trust the Hamas numbers, and I understand the reasons for that argument, but then we need numbers to compare that to because these numbers are, are really, really bad. These, these ratios, even compared with uh, Israel's previous handling, uh, are, are bad, even by their own measures. Yeah, and, and the Ministry of Health numbers um, have proven to be accurate in, in the past, and even Israel... Uh, in past conflicts, when they've put out their numbers after a conflict, they've they've mostly matched what the uh, what the what the Ministry of Health has put out. And what I would add to those is that there's also like if you throw in the elderly, uh, you get you push that number you know well into the seventy percentages. And also as a non-combatant male, uh, I'd like to you know put in a a good word uh, for non-combatant males. Like we we always kind of get tossed into this bucket of mm. uh, potential combatants, you know, so you'll say, well, I guess we're left with 30% of, of people who are Hamas. And it's like, well, we know for a fact that so far they've killed 73 journalists. Um, you know, a significant number of them were men, not all of them, but a significant number were. Uh, I, I know of, you know, through people I've interviewed, significant, uh, you know, significant, significant numbers of, of men, even fighting age men, who had absolutely nothing to do uh, with Hamas, uh, and so once you once you throw them in, you're getting you know even further down. We can just talk about this based on kind of the Israeli figures. You you heard the spokesperson there say that they're they're killing two civilians uh, for every you know one Hamas uh, fighter that they that they kill. Now that's take I would take that with a grain of salt as well. If that's what they're saying publicly now, I suspect we'll we'll find the ratio to be significantly higher. But what's so disturbing about that is that he says that well, if you look at you know, previous combat, you know, we should, you know, if you compare us to perfection, well, of course we fall short, but if you compare us to previous combat, then actually, you know, we're doing quite well. If you compare that to October 7th, they're not doing well. We all, and, and October 7th is a useful comparison because all of us recognize that as a horrific atrocity. 
and as something that uh, you know, should be condemned kind of top to bottom. But if you look at the military to civilian uh, casualty rates, you're looking at a roughly two to two to one civilian uh, to, to military personnel, military or police personnel. And so if if we all agree and we and we do that, that was a horrific atrocity and a war crime that should be prosecuted. How can the IDF then say with roughly the same proportion that they are actually conducting themselves in an ethical fashion? Doesn't that put them in a in a in a pretty tough bind and expose what's going on? Yeah, and it does. And you know, as somebody who probably disagrees with you on a lot of different aspects of this conflict, sort of on the more foundational level, and my position is Hamas should release the hostages. If Israel's goal is the eradication of Hamas, and, and that's what's justifying uh, the sort of continued conflict, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not seeing evidence that there's you know, concrete steps that are going to be taken seriously towards that end goal, that that is a, a kind of, in, in, in some ways, you can have a similar conversation about Ukraine. Ukraine is going to reclaim every inch of the Donbass, and until that, all of the blood will continue to be spilled. Uh, and, you know, the eradication of Hamas is just an impossible goal, an understandable and important goal. Uh, but I think, you know, that's, it's just not good enough two months into the conflict conflict as a, a sort of end um, while these numbers continue to stack up. And let's put the next element up on the screen. This is an estimate of the a number of Hamas fighters that have been killed so far. According to a report, Israeli intelligence, uh, their latest estimate is that they've killed around 5,300 Hamas terrorists. The New York Times reports that the, the estimate is there are about 30,000 Hamas terrorists uh, embedded in the two point something million, about 2.2 million person population of Gaza. So 5,300 Hamas terrorists, we don't know. Uh, it's, that's that's almost impossible uh, to confirm at the same time. Uh, that's a, a, you know, that that will factor into those calculations, Ryan. Um, what d Does that sound to you like a plausible number? I mean, who knows? You know, there's been so much killing in Hamas that I, I mean, in, in, uh, in Gaza, uh, that certainly, you know, even even just by chance, you're going to hit, you know, a, a number of Hamas fighters. So, uh, and even if the IDF spokesperson is saying, "Look, we're we think we have a two to one civilian ratio," the fact that that makes them look so bad uh, suggests that it, there's probably a, a little bit of truth to it. Even if they're uh, even if they're counting, you know, a, a number of people who, you know, they suspect were uh, Hamas fighters who who actually actually were not. We have another CNN clip here talking about uh, one particularly troubling case. We can roll that now. What happened on October 7th was an absolute atrocity, was a thousand atrocities. Uh, I think at the same time we condemn those atrocities, we have to condemn the atrocities that happen every day to Palestinians in the West Bank. You mentioned sexual violence. Uh, I was part of the human rights vetting process for arms going to Israel and a charity called Defense of Children International Palestine uh, drew our attention at the State Department to the sexual assault, actually the rape of a 13-year-old boy that occurred in an Israeli prison in the Moskobia in Jerusalem. Uh, we examined these allegations. Uh, we believe they were credible. We put them to, Israel, to uh, the government of Israel. And you know what happened the next day? The IDF went into the DCIP offices and removed all their computers and declared them a terrorist entity. Um, I think it is vital that atrocities not happen to anyone not sexual, not sexual violations, not any kind of gross violation of human rights. We are looking at a situation where there is so much 
dehumanification, where people are not seen for the value that they have. And I think that's true whether you're talking about those who are attacked on their kibbutz or those who are attacked in their homes in Gaza or in the West Bank. What we really need is to center the human beings who are at the core uh, and who are suffering so much uh, in, in this conflict. So that was Josh Paul. He's a State Department official that resigned over uh, the sending of weapons to Israel. If you were listening to that um, and didn't see it on the screen, that's who he was. He was talking to Christian Amanpour. Uh, let's put this next element up on the screen as, screen as well. This is uh, a headline from Al Monitor that says, the growing U.S.-Israel rift over Gaza war timeline will Netanyahu budge. Ryan, that's basically what we've been talking about in this entire segment is uh, how are the, the mounting pressures from the mounting tragedies in Gaza ultimately going to influence Netanyahu himself, the decision makers uh, behind Israel and the Israeli military, as the U.S. has reportedly, again, this timeline of uh, their, their target date for an end of the invasion being sometime around January right. 1, 2024. Uh, what do you make right. of that? Yeah, so our monitor's sources are saying, yeah, basically telling Israel that they have through uh, the end of this month, you know, to, to wrap up this uh, this military campaign. But then they report, uh, you know, quote, this is not a deadline, uh, but a target during a war target dates can shift. And so you have this combination of kind of uh, American, you know, pr either public or private uh, rhetoric pushing in one direction with then the, the immediate kind of uh, implication that uh, you can consider this just a suggestion. It, it's reminiscent a little bit of uh, Tony Blink, there are reports of Tony Blinken uh, meeting, you know, about a week ago with Israeli military officials and, you know, the war cabinet. And they were laying out their war plans that lasted several months. And he told them, you know, you don't have that much credit. And that was his, that was the quote that made it into the press, you know, telling them, you know, this needs to be wrapped up. At the same time, uh, you 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 see this kind of loosening of it at the very end. And the reason that you see them, you know, saying that you're running out of credit, I think is the people like uh, Josh Paul kind of breaking through in the in the global media and bringing attention to not just what's going on in Gaza, but what's happening, you know, more generally uh, with with the occupation. That that story he told was, I think, controversial. In, on an American television show because he's equating, you know, Palestinian lives with Israeli lives. And you're, that's just, you're just not supposed to do that. You know, you're not, you're not supposed to, you know, what, when Pramila Jayapal called for quote unquote balance in how we talk about this, you know, she was pilloried, you know, for the, for a couple of days over that. But for Josh Paul to say, look, I was involved in a specific case of an allegation, a credible allegation of the uh, rape of a 13-year-old boy, which should make a lot of people pause and be like, well, wait a minute. Why was there a 13-year-old boy in prison uh, to begin with? And then he follows up with, you know, the, when they alerted the Israeli authorities, they, you know, thank you for the tip. We appreciate that. And they raid the offices of the human rights organization, seize their uh, computers and designate them as a, as a terrorist organization. Like that, that's the kind of thing I think that is drying up uh, Israeli credit. On the other hand, it doesn't seem like Israel cares that much at this moment. You know, what the White House says, as long as what the White House says doesn't translate into them actually doing anything. Yeah, I, I mean, just the amount of 
uh, representatives that they send into American media every day <laughs> and Western media in general every day tells me that they they are conscious of how important American public opinion is to their you know, continued support. Although at the same time, you're right, Ryan, um, American public opinion could you know go in one direction and the Biden administration could still uh, be doing a lot to help behind the scenes while saying something maybe that is more appealing uh, to the American public uh, in public forums. Uh, so I, I mean, I do think that's interesting. And I think Israeli civilians aren't going to be served and protected by an extended conflict either. I think that's really important, again, from the perspective of, of uh, somebody maybe on the other side is that like, the, the Israeli civilians um, before October 7th and, and after October 7th, uh, I think we all agree uh, the security situation is not ideal. It's, it's mm-hmm. far from ideal. It is There was no resolution to it before October 7th on October 6th, and it, that's the, the security situation has only worsened. And so with the yeah. end goal of eradicating Hamas and no, I would say, plausible, viable plan as to what would fill that vacuum if this impossible end was actually achieved and what will fill the vacuum um, you know, after it is uh, partially, likely, partially achieved, I, I don't think we have confidence or, or can have confidence that uh, Israeli civilians are going to be much safer mm-hmm. after uh, the, yeah. you know, let's say, that January 1 target is hit. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Well, Ryan, you were talking about a lot of this because your book is out this week on CNN. So you joined Aaron Burnett, and we have a clip of your appearance on Aaron Burnett's show on CNN last and night. And yours, that, too. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I, they, they caught me reading your texts. I was actually reading your notes because you were reading from uh, quotes. Um, but I did joke on Twitter that I was reading Ryan's text from the CIA. Uh, here is Ryan's uh, appearance on CNN. 
Here is part of his exchange with journalist Ryan Grimm. Members of the squad have tweeted out from the river to the sea. But the answer, I'd allow him to say it, but I wouldn't sit there quietly. I'd point out that you are calling for, once again, the extermination of millions of Jews. As I'm sure you know, though, in Likud's platform, it says, you know, from the river to the sea, there will only be Israeli sovereignty. You know, are they suggesting genocide of all Palestinians? Of course not. Exactly. So if they're if they're not, why is the other suggesting genocide? Be- because that's what Hamas supports. We've had uh, Defense Minister uh, Gallant. We will eliminate everything. An IDF spokesperson. Our focus is on damage, not on precision. Another former Knesset member. There is one and only solution, which is to completely destroy Gaza before invading it. I mean destruction like what happened in Dresden and Hiroshima without nuclear weapons. Would you join us in condemning that as well? So I I condemn nothing that the Israeli government is doing. I I stand with the people of Israel. Talk to me about that moment. What did that say to you when you were sitting there having that exchange with him? I, I thought at least he would condemn some of the things that the Israeli government had already condemned. Like you don't have to get in front of them. Like for, for instance, the minister who floated the idea of nuking Gaza uh, was, was roundly like rebuked by other members of the Netanyahu cabinet. So it was striking to me that Cruz couldn't even go as far as members of the very far right Netanyahu cabinet. And I was just trying to, in that interview, find some com- common moral plane because you know, anytime you have anybody on uh, who's remotely critical of Israel, the interview starts with, you know, will you condemn at what Hamas did on October 7th. Today is December 5th. We're still having news cycles organized around that question from two months ago. So then it follows that, well, let's also get on a, a, the same moral level and condemn the kind of collective punishment of Palestinians as well. And then we can talk about a way forward. But he wouldn't go there. And that was kind of, uh, once he didn't, you're like, okay, well, I've got, if you condemn nothing, then there's nothing I can tell you that's going to I mean, you. it really was, I, I hope everyone will watch, it was a fascinating exchange. We take back all the things we said about CNN. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, mean, I actually think that's, it's fairly interesting to me that they, they ran the, I mean, a huge chunk of the clip in that exchange. Because I, I think one of the benefits of that exchange, as we talked about last week, was having some time to, A, you know, have let, let these discussions breathe mm-hmm. a little bit and and having on the other hand so point b is that you know ted cruz sitting down with somebody who's sort of openly an ideological opponent not an uh, not a lawmaker not an elected official um and you know not a hack but like somebody who's actually going to engage on the issue and I, so I, I think it's actually really heartening that people watch that and uh, you know, came away with this was really sort of insightful it's a it's the advantage of a longer interview too, right? C- cable is uh, you know so for, they do it to themselves. Like there's no there's no federal law that says they have to keep every segment to like two and a half or or three minutes. But they are you know have conditioned themselves to believe that the public you know won't won't be able to kind of keep up with anything uh, with anything more than that. Um, but if you do that, then right, you can't you can't kind of draw out the more the more interesting takeaways from. Uh, from conversations like uh, I'm gonna, I condemn absolutely nothing, and, and you know, up to and including things that even that Yahoo's cabinet uh, would condemn. And that goes to what we were talking about earlier: the, this stark difference between how this conversation unfolds 
you know, here in the United States and how it how it unfolds over uh, in the Israeli media, where because there is you know so much more kind of lust for revenge after October seventh there that the is, Israeli government is, is much more open about what it's doing. They don't they don't want to sugarcoat anything that they're doing in Gaza because if they sugarcoat it, then the public will, um, and some and some of the kind of cap, the cabinet will demand no 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 we we want more than that. And there's enormous sensitivity, uh, obviously, you know, as there is in Israel, but in the United States about anti-Semitism and about this sort of Western anti-Semitism as opposed to sort of uh, radical Islamic anti-Semitism. And so we have these standards that create sort of an impossible condition for discourse on this particular issue. And I do think it's unfortunate the extent to which people are afraid. For example, when you read what you read, as we just watched again, uh, that people feel as they have no flexibility to kind of honestly right. reckon with uh, some you, serious points there, and you know there are we, we could have gone much longer in that interview, and I think we both wanted to. Um, but yeah, that, I thought that was you know the best part of the interview, the, the most helpful part of the exchange. I, I want to also put this element on the screen from HuffPost um, because it's more reporting from your book. And uh, the book, you've, you've mentioned this before, is so timely. It turned out to be so timely because it ended up, as you were digging into kind of the evolution of the squad, so much of it is sort of revolving around APAC and around the question of Israel. So this is the headline. Top pro-Israel group offered Ocasio-Cortez $100,000 of campaign cash per new book. Ryan, you also reported this week <laughs> that the, uh, I think you said like the Murdoch empire had just mm -hmm. utterly twisted parts of the book in an effort to make Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, and the squad in general and sort of the green agenda um, look foolish. I was really like, I mean, not I, I shouldn't say surprised, but taken aback by I think how egregious the um, coverage of things from your book has been. Uh, Daniel Marin's article is not among them. Uh, he, he is reporting based on your report uh, that APAC actually reached out to Ocasio Cortez with quote a whole lot more than an olive branch. Right. Yeah. So if we've talked earlier about that. Um, that 2018 interview that she did with uh, Margaret Carlson on on the firing line is like three weeks after she won her primary. She'd been nailing every single interview, and then she gets hit with questions about Israel Palestine. And I think, and I actually rewatched it on uh, with Hassan Piker on his on his stream yesterday. Uh, we kind of you know went down memory lane on that interview, and her her answers are actually fine for the most part. The, her problem is she starts to to visibly betray a kind of lack of confidence that she's getting these questions right. And, and by the end, she just taps out and says, look, I'm not an expert on this. We didn't talk about this much at my Bronx you know, dinner table. You know, I, I'm gonna talk to more people about this. Let me, you know, let me, let me step away from this question because you know, I'm, I'm dying inside here. So basically what you can, you can see on, on her face as she's getting asked about her use of the phrase, quote, occupation of Palestine or, or equating of you know Palestinian uh, lives being taken uh, by the IDF, with you know protesters getting shot in in Puerto Rico or protesters getting shot in Ferguson, Missouri. Like uh, Carlson seems to like really object to this this equating of Palestinian lives and American uh, and American lives because the Middle Eastern dynamics are so so different. And um, and so she just kind of taps out at at the very end. And so what what I report in the book is that you know, about a week later. 
um, when uh, she and Bernie are in Kansas you know, campaigning for a candidate out there, her uh, Corbin Trent, our communications director, gets a call and says, "Hey, you know, uh, we saw that we saw the interview. Um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm with APAC. Uh, I've already bundled together, you know, a good hundred thousand dollars to start the conversation with AOC. We can, you know, we can help to educate her, uh, to you know, to make sure that you know she doesn't have another, uh, you know, another face plant interview like this again. And it was a it was for her team, her and her team, a real window into kind of how Washington works. And that if you were a normal member of Congress who had just won a primary uh, and had not instantly become, you know, bizarrely and uniquely this kind of global celebrity, which comes with it, all this campaign cash, you'd be like, oh, $100,000? Oh, yeah, I desperately need $100,000. And also I need, I need talking points on this issue because, you know, I didn't run on this question. I don't want it to become a huge political liability. Uh, she was in a, a position where she, you know, could, could and did say, you know, uh, thanks, but no thanks. She, she was happy to meet with, you know, groups on all sides, but didn't, but, but didn't want to kind of get hooked in with, with a, the, this first offer of $100,000 with the, uh, the, the pledge that there was lots, you know, lots more behind it. You know, instead, you're now seeing, you know, tens of millions and potentially up to $100 million, you know, being spent against the squad in the, in the next cycle to kind of, you know, wipe them out as a political entity. And tell us about how your book was covered um, by, I believe oh, it was yeah. the Daily Mail and the New York Post. Which, yeah, and Daily, Ma- Daily Mail, I had forgotten for some reason. Daily Mail is not Murdoch-owned, but it's part of that, like, you know, right-wing uh, e- ecosystem. It, it was, it's been kind of surreal to, to watch. Uh, basically, they, you know, they, they got some early copies of the book and took, you know, quotes by people who were quoted in the book uh, attributed them it attributed them to me and then kind of elevated like for instance there was one where um, one you know person for sunrise um, said that um, one element of the green New Deal rollout was a you know a cluster uh, and instead of quoting that person they attribute to me and they and they say that I re- report in the book that the entire green New Deal was a, a giant cluster mm-hmm. uh, and, and that and and that it, the whole the whole thing was just wild to watch. You know, it's it's because you know you're like that. No, the, none of these none of these things are in, are in the book. I didn't I didn't say these things at all. Um, there are some criticisms in the book, but they come from you know in earnest plays of like what what lessons uh, can be learned. There, one of the other funny funny isn't the right word, but funny examples uh, was you know that I say that. You know, she became a, a like a pariah and, a, and uh, closed off to all these uh, donors, without set, closed off these big donors without without adding the context that her decision to be closed off to these major donors um, is a good thing, and is a function of the squad's ability and the Bernie Sanders wing's ability to kind of raise so so many small don- dollars, and that that then appears to be a threat to the rest of the caucus. And they kind of flip that on its head into into you know whatever weird cynical kind of framing they, they put on top of it. So yeah, it's it, it it's you know I've I've obviously seen that the kind of Murdoch empire do that for for years, but it was kind of surreal to like be in the middle of it, and probably for you too, having since you actually had read the book and you read these pieces, and you're like, hmm, no, that's not <laughs> that's not right. That's not. I mean, yeah, I think someone probably read it really quickly and just kind of ran with right. uh, the vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And they're like, this this will click. Yeah, let's just slap this up. And then yeah. the next thing you know, it's like just absolutely everywhere in conservative media. It's like bizarre, just utterly bizarre. <laughs> Ryan Grimm, conservative media darling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on uh, to the Middle East and Vladimir Putin's trip to the Middle East. Vladimir Putin actually just landed in the the UAE a couple of hours ago as we're speaking here. Now, remember, the uh, sheikh of the UAE, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, actually was the one who sort of positioned himself to negotiate the release of Brittany Griner. So there's so many interesting dynamics. Putin is going later today to Saudi Arabia. Uh, According to Russian government spokesman, they're going to be talking about the war in Ukraine. They're going to be talking about the war in Gaza. And of course, they're going to be talking about oil production. So in Saudi Arabia in particular, we can put the element up on the screen. While the kingdom has made a voluntary oil production cut of 1 million barrels a day, the New York Times reports, Russia has contributed smaller cuts to its exports, but not its production, despite Saudi attempts to convince Russian officials to take more action. Another important thing here, uh, Putin is actually on Thursday in Moscow hosting the Iranian president, and he hasn't, Putin himself has not traveled beyond China, Iran, and some former Soviet states actually since he first invaded Ukraine back in February 2022. So he's doing UAE, Saudi Arabia in one day and then hosting Iran in Moscow the next day and set to negotiate over oil. Uh, Actually, a a pro-Russian government daily paper, as the New York Times notes, reported on Tuesday that Russia would not oppose conducting talks with Ukraine in a European country like Hungary. So with these sort of three fronts, talking about Ukraine, talking about Israel and Gaza, and talking about oil, uh, Ryan, you've made some really interesting points about a Trump-Biden matchup in 2024, and oil in particular, when you have uh, the Saudi royal family very close to Jared Kushner and very close to the Trumps. Uh, What could potentially happen uh, on that front when you talk about how the American election could potentially affect the conflicts and U.S. support, uh, military support for uh, the Ukrainian uh, military and Ukrainian government and for the Israeli military and the Israeli government, that's all on the line uh, in the next year, which we are rapidly careening towards. So pretty interesting timing for this trip. Yeah, and exactly. When Trump was president, you know, he twice publicly, um, you know, browbeat uh, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia uh, to manipulate uh, gas prices for electoral purposes. You know, first in, in 2018, he wanted gas prices uh, down for those midterms. And then in 2020, uh, the collapse of, of gas prices was threatened to create uh, in, in its own like economic crisis by, by triggering all kinds of weird defaults. If you remember, there was a time where uh, oil was selling at like below zero dollars a barrel, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and and that can like just call, that can cause like mayhem in in markets. And so he urged you know MBS to kind of you know pull back on uh, production to kind of rescue and did it every time. As Biden has you know pushed uh, MBS, he's had you know much less success. The reporting and the analysis that I've seen is is pretty strongly indicative of the fact that. You know, MBS would love to see Republicans, you know, come come back in office. Saudi Arabia has become more aligned with with Republicans. Um, there's been some reporting that, um, you know, Putin thinks that you know he might be able to get a better deal uh, with uh, Trump uh, than than with Biden. 
Uh, so you do have this interesting situation where you know it, the the elections are so organized around gas prices sometimes that uh, you end up kind of outsourcing uh, power over moving the needle of our, our electoral dial um, to two people like uh, you know uh, MBZ, MBS, uh, Putin, etc. And also, I can I can confirm out here in Los Angeles they want like six dollars a gallon for gas. I thought that I thought they were making that up. There's, I'm like, there's no way. Blame Gavin Newsom. No, Gavin Newsom. Incredible. Blame Ryan Grimm's green agenda. The Grimm green agenda. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, failed state out here. Tell you what. Seriously. Uh, But actually, in the vacuum of what's perceived as U.S. leadership, um, other countries have started trying to negotiate sort of peace deals in Ukraine and in the Middle East, which has been kind of fascinating to watch because we really haven't seen that seriously in a matter of years, uh, perhaps a matter of decades, really. And Business Insider's headline about the Putin trip is that uh, he, quote, seeks to humiliate Biden by showing him that attempts to isolate Russia have failed. I mean, I don't know that that's his primary goal, but that is definitely, uh, I think, probably an intended outcome uh, from Vladimir Putin in this case, that he hasn't traveled outside of Russia, Iran, China um, since the invasion. And now that there's another hot conflict, two hot conflicts that the U.S. is waging almost as proxy wars, obviously as a proxy war in Ukraine and uh, you know, arguably as a proxy war in Israel and in Gaza. Um, and, and precisely, by the way, Um, With this axis of evil formulation, we've heard this from Netanyahu, we've heard this um, from other people about the alliance between Russia, Iran, and China, um, and then Iran's relationship with Hamas and Hezbollah. That's sort of been precisely the justification for U.S. involvement and for uh, a broad Western um, uh, uh, sort of brick of support uh, Mm -hmm. in this region. And you know, this this is in some ways bolstering those uh, sort of claims. Uh, but on the other hand, if you have the Saudis squeezed between uh, Trump and Biden and Putin, I mean, these dynamics are just so, it's, it's a very fragile ecosystem. I mean, a very fragile yeah. ecosystem. Yeah. And con- congratulations, I guess, to Iran uh, for making it, being the only country to make it into both axis of evils over the last 20 years. I, North, poor North Korea and Iraq, you know, didn't didn't make the finals this time, replaced, I guess, by Russia and China and this. But the U.S., you know, has everything, it seems like everything the U.S. has done over the last several years has just, you know, uh, hurt the U.S.'s own standing, you know, vis-a-vis a lot of these, a lot of these countries. Uh, the Abraham Accords, you know, were intended to kind of lock down you know, U.S. alliances with, with Israel uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, the, you know, the rest of the, the Middle East um, by basically, you know, cutting peace deals and ignoring the uh, fact of the Palestinians. Uh, that hasn't that hasn't worked. Now it threatens uh, to kind of drive a wedge in between um, Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE and and others, uh, which, you know, it seems like Putin is, is happy to kind of, you know, waltz into and see if he can uh, capitalize on that. The other U.S. strategy was to uh, rip up uh, the Iran deal, and then Biden failed to get back into it, uh, which has then, um, you know, for, you know, for, further isolated Iran, and, and you know, uh, has done nothing obviously to reduce 
its support for its proxies around the world, you know, Hamas, uh, uh, its, you know, its clients in, uh, you know, the Iran-backed Houthis, whether the Syrian uh, or Iraqi militias or, or Hezbollah. Uh, and so, and then uh, that, that then, you know, further kind of pushes them closer to, uh, to China and, and to Russia. And so you just constantly see a receding of American influence through decisions that we continue to make. And then you throw on top of that um, our, our belief that by you know, uh, financing the Ukrainian kind of resistance to the Russian invasion, that we were going to you know, dramatically weaken uh, Russia's military capacity. You know, it, it appears like you know, Russia's military capacity in 2022 was actually pretty weak. You know, they, they collapsed you know, pretty, pretty quickly. But you know, two years later, they you know under under the strain of of this of actual combat, it seems like in some ways we've actually kind of you know strengthened them as well as you know tightened their relationships with other global South countries as well. So you know even on its own terms, it doesn't seem like any of the belligerence that the U.S. is engaged with is actually even benefiting the United States, let alone all of the collateral damage that it's doing. That is such an important point because even on the sort of hawkish terms, when you're looking at what uh, the war in Ukraine and now the war in Gaza have done to um, A, public support for militarism abroad, um, but B, and, and most importantly, from Putin's perspective, uh, to our military industrial base. So a whole lot of people are arguing that the war in Ukraine, uh, or a whole lot of, I guess, neoconservative war hawks are arguing that the war in Ukraine has just uh, re-emboldened uh, the U.S. industrial base, that we are you know, getting back to 1945 and the thriving military industrial complex that we uh, you know, so badly need. And it's, it's just bringing the American economy into uh, full bloom. And uh, actually, that's not what's happening. If you look at people who are particularly concerned, even hawkish people that are particularly concerned about Taiwan, that are particularly concerned about how long it's going to take to onshore chips manufacturing in the United States, even with mm -hmm. the CHIPS mm -hmm. Act, uh, all this has done has depleted our capacity to, again, even by sort of hawkish terms, support Taiwan in the case of an invasion. And we have heard Xi Jinping, who's allied with Vladimir Putin, talking very clearly about uh, the sort of, he, he usually says like the peaceful um, the, the peaceful unification process as it relates to Taiwan uh, and everything like that. But uh, the reality is the United States relies on Taiwan for national security, for a, a huge, huge chunk of our economy and our ability to sort of function um, with the technological necessities that we've come to depend on. And so if these two conflicts are uh, affecting public support for militarism and if they're affecting our actual uh, ability to engage in a military conflict elsewhere, you can see very clearly how um, Putin would be finding allies in places like Iran and China and how those relationships would be shored up because there's a sort of mutually beneficial outcome uh, of you know, pushing the U.S. to uh, burn more and more resources in Ukraine. And, and Putin obviously has his own problems. He's, he's lost tens of thousands of people in battle um, and you know, lost uh, was not initially as successful as uh, you know, they, they sort of expected to be in Ukraine. But this is, you know, even by, I think it's such an important point, even by the standards that the Hawks purport mm -hmm. uh, to be seeking, uh, 
they're falling wildly short, and the Biden administration is falling uh, falling wildly short. And and just I'm reminded of what Jake Sullivan said before October seventh, and about the Biden administration's sort of perpetuation of the Abraham Accords. Although some conservatives would argue that its relationship with Iran had undercut its uh, approval for the Abraham Accords, Jake Sullivan said. You've never seen you know, such peace in the Middle East. Uh, they, they just get, keep getting sort of smacked left and right by reality. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Speaking of the global south, uh, a, a, fun, a bizarre little development we can talk about uh, for for a minute here over in over in South Asia. So if, you know if you know people who've been watching the show know that uh, over at the Intercept and, and here we've been doing a bunch of reporting um, both about uh, the the U.S. role in uh, the ouster of uh, Imran Khan in Pakistan and also about India's uh, now sprawling kind of global assassination program. Uh, you know, and these stories are not exactly related, uh, but one thing that uh, they have in common is that you know we've we've been reporting on them, and we've drawn kind of on documents that we've gotten from sources and uh, you know let's say uh, let's just leave it at sources uh, from over there, uh, which has drawn the attention now of what appears to be uh, the, the uh, either Pakistani uh, intelligence apparatus or, or military apparatus. Uh, it's, it's one of the, the most bizarre and, you know, kind of pitiful attempts to counteract um, reporting that, that I've seen. Uh, but we, we played this little clip from this kind of account, this I think it's called PTI Insider, which is broadly understood in Pakistan to be kind of a front um, for the kind of uh, Pakistan military establishment. And what, what we're about to play for you is, uh, is alleged, and this is not a parody. Like, <laughs> as you're listening to it, you're going to think this is a parody. It's, it's alleged to be 
a leaked conversation uh, between my intercept colleague, Murtaza Hussein, and his alleged uh, Iranian, uh, not Iranian, uh, Indian, basically CIA handler, the, uh, CIA, the Indian CIA is called the RAW. Uh, so, the, so, and uh, they, they call him something absurd, almost like Mr. Shawarma. Uh, so, but let's, let's play a little clip of, this. so this was, this was leaked in basically in Pakistani uh, social media. Hello, Mr. Sharma, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I hope it is safe to talk. Yes, yes, please go on. All right. Well, uh, I already conveyed my worries on how people have started to question the sources of my information and stories. Okay. Uh, you know, now even my close aides have uh, started to question the authenticity of my information. Yeah, fine by me. I just wanted to run it by you. Uh, it's good if you have taken the stock of the whole picture. Okay. I'll uh, keep you posted. Mm -hmm. Yes, sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Take okay. care. Just utterly incredible. And just for fun, um, let's play a very brief clip of uh, Martaza himself, who's, who's appeared on Counterpoints, appeared on uh, Breaking Points. Uh, just a little, let, let's do some uh, some voice analysis here. Let's see how, how, how effective they were at creating this fake. Well, it's, it's a very curious relationship because in many ways, Saudi Arabia is dependent on U.S. security guarantees. Uh, they're dependent on political guarantees from the U.S. They have very close ties with U.S. I like that that clip was before Sagar went full beard. It's, it's such a different yes. era. It's a real throwback. <laughs> Sounds um, pretty close to me. What's so wild is that in the era of AI, you know, you, I think you could probably do a pretty convincing one if you even tried. Because, you know, he hosts the podcast Intercepted. There's a, There's no shortage of his voice out there on the internet that they could input into some AI and then spit out. It just seems like they don't even care. That they don't even care. Um, I think That's what I was going to ask you. Do they even care? I mean, it's, it's just so flagrantly uh, bad. <laughs> right. I think it, it, and with, with bots like amplifying it, they'll still, you know, it'll, it's still, it's going to get, you know, hundreds of thousands of, uh, you know, of views on uh, throughout social media. And, and it's the the aim of some of that propaganda is just to give kind of critics something to kind of point to so you can muddy the water mm -hmm. and say, oh, yeah, there was this. Remember, there was this thing you can't trust the reporting because it's actually, you know, coming from uh, the kind of Indian intelligence agency. So therefore, uh, you know, these these reporters are actually just uh, just agents of, of India. So you shouldn't shouldn't trust them. Yeah, but it was just. Um, uh, so that 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 experience, coupled with uh, the uh, the kind of Murdoch Empire, to, you know, re reading and distorting the book, it's like this 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 is a weird this is a weird world that we're kind of stepping into uh, in this kind of post whatever truth environment we're in. Can you give us the thirty thousand foot view on why uh, sort of strategically this shallow fake, as it's been dubbed, um, is something that you can kind of, from the raw strategic uh, tactical standpoint, um, if people are, you know, behind on the reporting mm -hmm. that you guys have done about Imran Khan, what's, from their perspective, the strategic value of getting Murtaza to sound like this? Yeah, so, first of all, people have to understand that, you know, that, you know Pakistan and India, um, you know, have this absolutely intense rivalry uh, that, 
uh, in, in Pakistani internal documents, um, they, they, they refer to REW constantly as a uh, hostile nation intelligence agency. They, they like, they won't even kind of name the country. They just call it, just call it hostile nation. That's kind of how much hostility there are. There is. And so if anything that you can kind of taint in the public with Indian influence, they hope then uh, the public is, is going to dismiss. There's a, there's an, an election that's going to be happening uh, in Pakistan, uh, which which Imran Khan so far is not being able to uh, participate in. Uh, he's he's in in prison, facing you know completely uh, you know trumped up charges, uh, and so the U.S. has been saying out loud that uh, you know Pakistan needs to allow free and fair elections, and that everybody should be able to participate. But they don't act. They don't. They aren't pressuring Pakistan to. To require the most popular politician um, in Pakistan, who was Imran Khan, uh, to be on the ballot at this, and I think that there's some, and there's a lot of concern in, in Pakistan about the reporting uh, that we've done because it has it has exposed the the role of the Pakistani uh, military and you know, the Pakistani military establishment in, in collusion with the United States and in, in, in helping to push him out of. Uh, happened to push him out of office related to, you know, his refusal to give full-throated support to, uh, to Ukraine and to U.S.'s, you know, the U.S.'s effort to, to arm the Ukrainians. And in the wake of his uh, ouster, um, Pakistan has become a critical supplier of artillery shells um, for, for Ukraine. And you've also seen um, and how Israel ramping up its demand uh, for artillery shells. And so, you know, there aren't there aren't a whole lot of places where all of you know this kind of low these low grade munitions can be made, and so you know Pakistan's kind of democracy became something that could be sacrificed for the at the altar of the production of these um, this art these artillery shells. Another good reason to stick around for the last block of the show today, which is an interview with mm. author Stuart Reed on the Lumumba yes. plot, his new book, because these things continue to be relevant. Yes, um, right, and Lumumba, it's a very good point because Lumumba. Um, was, you know, he in the CIA, we'll talk to Stuart about this, in the CIA crosshairs for basically being neutral, same as Imran Khan, not necessarily for siding against the United States, but not being full-throated in support, yes. Interesting Many how little cases. changes. Many yeah. such cases. Absolutely. Let's move back to the United States here to talk about a very big development yesterday, which is that since March, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville uh, has been holding up hundreds of military nominations because the Pentagon insists on a policy, a post-Dobbs decision policy that pays for employees, uh, mostly in blue states, to travel to get abortions. Uh, Republicans, I think, have a pretty good case arguing that that's illegal because there's obviously a ban on taxpayer funding of abortions, but the Pentagon can say it's not funding for abortions, it's funding for the travel. So you can sort of get into the legal weeds on that question, but Tommy Tuberville, as negotiations for funding the government and end of year, sort of the end of your scramble to meet all of these deadlines is coming up. Tom Tuberville agreed yesterday 
to drop most of the holds, but not all of the holds. Let's put this up on the screen. This is from The Hill. You see right there the headline, Tupperville releasing holds on hundreds of military promotions. If I were writing this headline uh, for a, even, even for a sort of centrist or purportedly neutral publication, uh, I think it's really, really important to note, and I would probably put it in the headline, as The Hill writes, quote, a hold will remain in place for the roughly 10 nominations for four-star generals and officers. So yes, it's true that hundreds of other promotions are now going to move really quickly through the Senate. But to have 10 four-star nominations continue to be held up actually is still a very big deal because that continues to put pressure uh, in some of the highest stake decisions and, and approvals uh, over this Pentagon policy. And I want to put the next element up on the screen. This is a story from one of my colleagues at The Federalist. This is our headline. Don't blame Tuberville for dropping his Pentagon abortion protest. Blame his feckless GOP colleagues. And why this is interesting is my colleague Sean Fleetwood has some more reporting on the intraparty dynamics that never really showed up in uh, the kind of neutral corporate media. Mm -hmm. uh, as Sean mentions, Tuberville actually had enough votes to include a provision nuking the Pentagon's illegal abortion policy, as Sean puts it, in the 2024 NDAA. Chuck Schumer, however, gutted that provision before the measure could be considered by the upper chamber. So word got to Schumer, if you talk to sources uh, with knowledge of the situation, word gets to Schumer is the assumption, and he says, we're not voting on this. So Tuberville does everything to get the votes to uh, you know, say, if, if Joe Biden and the Pentagon are not going to uh, withdraw this policy on their own, we're actually going to pass it through Congress and we're going to get Democrat support for it because there is this provision against uh, prohibition on taxpayer funding for abortion. And he did. He had that. Uh, but Chuck Schumer outmaneuvered him because obviously Democrats control the Senate and the White House. And they wanted to actually move something through the Rules Committee. He had a resolution he was going to pass the Rules Committee that, if it was approved by 60 senators, would have, as Sean puts it, effectively allowed their parties to, to circumvent Tuberville's protest and permit the Pentagon's policy to go unchallenged. And the worry there, from even the staunchest pro-life anti-abortion senators, was that is setting a terrifying precedent for how the Senate would operate in the future. So as Sean puts it again, this left Tuberville with no good options. Uh, this is on everyone who sold them out, a Hill staffer, senior Hill staffer told the Federalist, and, and not on Tuberville himself. This was a huge rallying moment for the conservative movement over the course uh, of the last year, but as uh, the attack on Israel on October 7th happened, and then as uh, actually you started to see, like for example, Ohio, uh, the results come in from issue one in Ohio, more and more pressure hit Tommy Tuberville, who basically shocked his Republican colleagues. Nobody expected him to have a strong ideological position on uh, abortion. Nobody expected him to be so hostile to leadership and to become sort of a conservative stalwart. Uh, who knows where this goes on other issues? But uh, again, from my read of the situation, kind of talking to people in these circles is Tuberville was furious by the way he was treated by the Republican establishment. And uh, this is, all of their attacks on him made him 
handle this or made him continue this from March until now instead of, you know, caving at any given point because of the way Republican leadership treated him. And it's interesting because he got a taste of how Republican leadership has has treated people who take serious conservative positions in line with their voters' positions, uh, but not in line with sort of the the Beltway uh, Republican lobbying circles positions. And we've talked about this many times, um, you know, parallels between the Freedom Caucus and the squad, parallels between how Dem leadership and Schumer um, operates compared to McConnell, uh, operates compared to McCarthy. There's all kinds of interesting dynamics about how both parties have have handled populism. But Ryan, I just want to ask you about that question of how this coverage has been handled, because again, my headline wouldn't have been Tuberville Caves. Mm -hmm. It would have been Tuberville blackmailed by Republicans into dropping, you know, popular conservative position. Um, I just, I think the media got this story really wrong since March, basically. And so, and so people understand kind of the the Senate kind of dynamics and rules here. If if what what an individual senator can do is you you put a hold on it on a nominee, and the Senate can override that. If you have sixty votes. You can override a hold, uh, but that takes a, almost a week of floor time to do that. And so, as you saw, there were hundreds, of, eventually thousands, kind of of nominations. A guy, you know, wants to become a captain or a court, uh, been appointed a colonel. Um, that promotion, you know, bizarrely to me, kind of has to go through uh, the Senate for approval. And so, there just isn't enough floor time to handle each each individual one. And so, you had, uh, you know. All you know, all of these promotions just hanging in limbo. People, you know, couldn't move, couldn't you know deploy. It was causing you know, all you know, it was causing a lot of organizational you know problems throughout throughout the military across the board. Uh, and and so finally, there was so much frustration that Schumer was saying, "All right, we're going to change the rules, and we're going to take away this power to do this hold in this in this circumstance." And the Senate is becoming so much like the House that. They saw, like, senators saw, uh oh, like, if we lose this one privilege remaining that we have, then, then what, what is our role here other than just to support leadership? And so, just so I understand, you, so your reporting is that Tuberville had sixty votes to kind of overturn the Pentagon's abortion policy, so that you would have had almost ten or more Democrats willing to go along. And why? You know, the, the Democratic caucus is pretty pro-choice at this point. Why do you think that they were willing to go along with it just to end end the, the blockade of all right. of these nominations? Yeah, I think it's exactly that. It gives them a talking point to say that they worked to end the blockade and to, you know, bolster national security. And then on the other hand, uh, taxpayer funding of abortion is, I mean— a, I think there's a pretty good argument that the policy was illegal to begin with, but B, um, not super popular across the board. Right. So the, their constituents, I mean, I think that's a pretty easy sell for their constituents, especially if they can wrap it in the packaging that they helped, uh, you know, secure military readiness, which is another really interesting point, by the way, because uh, the corporate media has unsurprisingly run with the Pentagon's narrative and the Biden administration's narrative. And it's been interesting to see the confluence of uh, the, the sort of pro-choice left and uh Defense Department Pentagon mm-hmm. uh, talking point here, which is that it is absolutely a 
essential to national security. They won't tell you how many times the policy has been used over the course of the last couple of years, but they do say that it's absolutely essential to national security to have this policy and that uh, Tommy Tuberville has, his hold has severely damaged military readiness. And the corporate press has really run with that line in a way to kind of make Tommy Tuberville look like a rube. Uh, to like this, this you know, Alabama redneck cares more about um, his your religious fanaticism than he does about uh, the the military. So there are all kinds of like interesting uh, cross sections here. But um, why that's interesting is if this if mili- military readiness was really on the line, this is a policy that probably affects maybe at most like a couple dozen people a year. You would you, you know that the Pentagon would have dropped the policy immediately if military readiness were actually like really a, a big concern here. What this is about is them not wanting to get smacked around by Republicans. They they have had that relationship on lock for decades, and uh, what they don't want is to give into you know what they think of as the crazy wing of the Republican Party. It, it, it's just as simple as that. And from their perspective, understandable strategy because they thought if they gave in that they would be vulnerable to cuts to to Ukraine, to cuts to all kinds of different things, uh, their powers, uh, surveillance powers, et cetera, et cetera. I think Ryan, at least, that's what ultimately their fear was. There's, a, there's also an interesting political realignment going on within the officer class of, of the military, which I don't know if it played into this or not, but I think it's useful context. Just as the parties have become polarized around uh, around education, you know, if you have a if you have a college degree or higher, uh, you, you're more likely at this point to vote Democratic. If you don't, you're more likely to vote Republican. Uh, officer class, you know, those are those are also those are basically college graduates. Like, for, uh, almost across the board, and as a result, they have they have been driven by the same kind of polarization around education. And and you, you know, you you kind of think in a vulgar way, oh, military they must be con- they must be conservative, they must support Republicans. But the officer class leans pretty heavily at this point um, Democratic in their in their preferences. Now they're very, you know, staunchly kind of apolitical as. You know, uh, as as military men and women, they're not Bernie people. They don't. They're not Bernie people. No, no. But and they're also not. You know, they're not. They're not actively like lobbying in the way that like, or or running the country the way that Pakistan's uh, military is. There is a very strong culture of you know separating, um, you know, the military and civilian affairs. But personally, a lot of them are becoming voters for Democrats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Post Trump, uh, because you know, again, like uh, Trump was campaigned basically on the problems with the military industrial com- complex, the Pentagon. And uh, that that's, again, I think ultimately what this is about. They're at loggerheads. They feel very threatened by a Republican party. And of course, Joni Ernst and Dan Sullivan and Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell criticized Tuberville immediately, like basically right out of the gate within the first couple of months of the hold. Uh, because what is more sacred to, uh, we talked about this when the Dobbs decision was announced. It's, a, I think, again, a big misconception in the media. What is more sacred to elite Republicans who run the GOP than abortion? Oh, the military and low taxes, and I could keep going. A, a million other priorities other than like social conservatism. And so I think this was a real test of that. And I think the McConnells and Sullivans of the world are genuinely afraid of the, the post-Trump cracks in that consensus about the MIC and, and all of that. So ultimately, I think that's what this was about. And I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it because I, I think the rest yeah. of the media missed the story. It's fascinating to watch this unfold, that's for sure. This is it, your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. House Republicans announced this week that they're actually going to be moving forward on the impeachment of Joe Biden next week. That's their plan. I teased this at the beginning of the show saying, like, oh, basically they have nothing to do, which was a little glib. Uh, But it is actually true that in addition to now an open impeachment inquiry that they say they have the votes for, Speaker Mike Johnson actually mentioned that on the Sunday shows this week. He says he has enough votes. Now that George Santos is gone, they have a three-vote majority. So that, that means basically every Republican is going to have to vote to open an impeachment inquiry formally. It's something that Kevin McCarthy didn't have just a couple of months ago. He said that they were going to uh, start opening this impeachment inquiry, but whether they had enough votes to formally do that uh, was a different question. So Jim Jordan has come out, we can put this first element up on the screen, uh, and said he hopes that the the House would vote, quote, as soon as possible, um, and and as early possibly as this week. It looks like it's going to be next week now. He says, we think it's helpful to have that vote because we do think that someone will take us to court. Constitutionally, it's not required. I think another important part of that is he says Republicans have not yet made a decision on what the charges against President Biden would be. As NPR puts it, Jordan said he still wants to talk to roughly 10 people over the course of six to seven weeks. And those witnesses would include Hunter Biden, James Biden, uh, Frank Frank Biden, and some of their business associates, probably just James Biden. um, And also following up on the whistleblower claims that there was slow walking of this at the DOJ and potentially at the IRS as well. Ryan, this comes as there, the amount of time versus the amount of work that has to be done to fund the government uh, by different deadlines uh, at the end of the year. Um, you know, Republicans, I don't think 
I don't think uh, Republican leadership is super eager uh, to have to deal with this, but also it, maybe they also think, like McCarthy did just a couple of months ago, this will make it easier for their voters to sort of swallow the pill of potentially bad deals on uh, end-of-year funding. I don't know. Right. It's like kind of short-term stability, um, uh, trading, trading for kind of uh, long-term stability. Uh, which uh, you know, we're going to talk about later with Stuart Reed and the Lumumba plot, the way that the kind of U U.S. would think about uh, some of this stuff abroad. It's like the House Republicans are creating all sorts of future problems for themselves so that they can, uh, you know, just get through the next day or the next week. But this comes after Kevin McCarthy kind of just announced that he was going to do an impeachment inquiry, uh, didn't... Uh, Put it onto the floor in the way that you're, you know, that you're supposed to. Said so just it, it's an impeachment inquiry, so therefore we have the official powers of impeachment. And this is sort of an acknowledgement by Johnson that, okay, actually that didn't work um, because, you know, the their their ability to kind of get some of the records and documents and interviews that they wanted, um, you know, has not has not met with the kind of impeachment level. But at the same time, they don't have, like you said, they don't have charges. They don't have. They're just kind of vaguely saying we're going to launch an inquiry uh, in the past in order to vote to impeach you actually had to have some you know pretty significant evidence uh, now they're saying we're going to vote to, to uh, launch this impeachment inquiry to go find the evidence and that's a that's a new thing and probably undermines kind of the potency in general of impeachment which is mostly it seems like at this point drained of any, any of its power just it's just a partisan tool at this time to feed to uh, you know, whichever whichever base is upset that its agenda is not being enacted, so at least we can impeach the guy. And, and you know, you you've actually covered the pretty serious uh, evidence of corruption against the Biden family in the past. So it's not you know we, <laughs> we, we both. I mean, I think we both see that as a, a very serious thing. And you know, I, I don't begrudge Republicans for doing this at all. To be perfectly honest, because. Uh, the the former president is has been indicted four times, and some of those are are much stronger cases than others. Maybe one of them is a much stronger case than the other three. There's clearly political lawfare going on, and the Biden family is clearly corrupt. Now, the degree of that corruption is a different question, and and that's what Republicans are right now trying to prove. Jim Comer came out with uh, on on Monday um, what I I saw referred to in some corners of the conservative press as quote a smoking gun, and and that's the kind of rub is that the evidence was regular payments were coming from, I actually have how NPR put it because I found it very amusing. Um, House Chairman, House Oversight Chairman Jim Comer posted a video on social media on Monday laying out allegations, including reporting that bank records the panel has indicate that Hunter Biden set up an account that sent monthly payments to his father in 2018. And then NPR goes on to say, but press reports indicate that the payments were related to Hunter repaying personal loans from his father. It looks like it was a truck, uh, that they, these were payments about like a Ford Raptor. Uh, and, and NPR saying, oh, but... It was just a personal loan when we know at the time from records that Hunter Biden is flush with cash from business deals in China, uh, specifically China at that time, and around the world, and saying that none of this could have anything to do. But it's just personal. Uh, I thought that sort of hand-waving from NPR was like incredibly unhelpful and sort of exactly why Republicans are saying, screw it, uh, if the media is going to dismiss all of this and is going to you know, sort of do the, the Biden family's 
his bidding um, by being dismissive of what does appear to be serious influence peddling, all while saying that Donald Trump was a, a influence peddling on behalf of the Russians for years in daily news cycles, you can understand, um, you know, on both levels, A, the level of like the probably corruption here, or there was definitely corruption here, and B, the media's not talking about it. I don't think the sort of Democrats do themselves, if, if they want to, you know, kind of get the country back to some semblance of normalcy and, and defeat the scourge of right populism, they're not doing any favors by pretending none of this is serious. And so to, to, to try to keep up with this stuff, so it, whose truck was it? Is it like who was driving the truck? Is this Hunter's truck? Hunter's, yeah, it was Hunter's truck. And he's paying. And it, but if Hunter's paying for the truck and Hunter's driving the truck, well, why is I must be missing something? Because why is that a payment to buy to Joe Biden or? It, so or it's is, about. Are they saying that they arranged like a payoff through a fake loan or like is that the? Like, well, yes. Yeah, so I, I just trying to keep up with the. Yeah, the, the problem Hunter is that gate. Um, Hunter at the time is he sets up this account that has the monthly payments to Joe Biden, uh, and Joe Biden purchased the car, but Hunter's setting up this account likely with money that's coming in from his Chinese influence peddling or his uh, other foreign influence peddling. Therefore, um, the account that he's using to pay his dad back is uh, the, the money he's using to pay his dad back is coming from the influence peddling is the so, so the smoking gun but if it's like, just right but if it's just a loan biden's not actually joe Bi joe biden is yeah he's getting dirty money because it's from overseas but he's right. only getting paid back his own money which he got in a dirty way through like the university of Delaware or university of pennsylvania whatever but that we can put that um aside with this like weird you know no-show job that he had up there but that, that's the more normal kind of soft corruption that we do, you know, right. post post political life for politicians. So it, yeah, I, I think they've got to have a higher bar for their smoking guns. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and that's where, it, like, again, that's the rub. You know, the, the media's doing a terrible job. Uh, I, I think Democrats are ignoring some of this at their peril. But then there is a serious, there, there's a serious risk for overreach. And obviously impeachment, opening a, a formal impeachment inquiry at a very, very busy time in Congress when government funding is on the line and Republicans always get blamed for that. It's, a, it's an easy political football for sure for Democrats. There's no question about it. Um, they claim that witnesses aren't cooperating. And that's what Jim Jordan is saying. If the witnesses aren't cooperating, you need to have a formal impeachment inquiry open in order to sort of force legally cooperation or to have a stronger mm -hmm. hand at forcing cooperation legally. Uh, and I think there's some, some real merit to that, but just an interesting, uh, an interesting development to add and an interesting part of the negotiations for funding the government too, because I do really think Republicans know if they don't do this and they, uh, you know, take, they give their constituents a hard pill to swallow going into 2024 with a potential government funding deal uh, that relates to Ukraine, that relates to uh, maybe the Pentagon and all of that, um, at least they'll have this to cling to, I guess. Yeah. At the same time, if they shut the government down while they're also seen to be focusing on this, it's going to make them look pretty look pretty silly. Um, yeah. But so up, up next, though, we've got uh, Stuart Reed talking about uh, his new book, The Lumumba Plot. Um, excellent book. Um, Emily, thank you for uh, suggesting we have him on. Let's move to Stuart next. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Ryan and I both are excited to be joined this morning by author Stuart Reed, who is out with a new book called The Lumumba Plot. We can put it up on the screen here. The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. Fantastic book. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us this morning on CounterPoints. Thanks for having me. Of course. We actually teased this segment a little bit in a block that we did about Ryan's reporting on Imran Khan uh, and how U.S. has uh, manipulated situations in other countries for our preferred outcomes in a kind of proxy sense. But maybe if we could just stay at 30,000 feet as we start this conversation. Uh, before we began, you you answered a question to Ryan, from Ryan that you spent about six years of your life on this book. So you're very intimately familiar with the Lumumba plot, obviously. But for those who aren't, could you just give a brief overview of, of what the Lumumba plot is, what happened to Lumumba, uh, and what your reporting tells us about how the U.S. sanctioned the operation? Sure. So Patrice Lumumba was the first prime minister of, of the country now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. When it um, became independent from Belgium in 1960, he was at the helm as prime minister. And immediately there was a crisis in the country where there was a mutiny, a province seceded, total chaos. And so Lumumba eventually, um, after knocking on the door of the Americans for help, turns to the Soviets and asks for military aid to help put his country back to, together. And in the context of the Cold War, this was seen as an unforgivable sin. And so that's when the CIA set in motion this bizarre assassination plot involving poisons that were flown to the Congo that the CIA station chief was supposed to put in the food or toothpaste of Lumumba. That poisoning plot ended up not coming to fruition, but the CIA was involved in a different way. It um, helped overthrow Lumumba. It helped... Uh, 
support the man, Joseph Mobutu, later known as Mobutu Sese Seko, who took power in a military coup and, and replaced Lumumba. And then, crucially, when Lumumba was sent to his death in January 1961, the CIA station chief on the ground essentially gave a green light for that operation. And on January 17th, 1961, Lumumba was shot dead in the breakaway province of Katanga, um, executed by a Congolese firing squad, commanded by Belgian officers who were answering to the secessionist leaders of that province. But the CIA played a key role in greenlighting Lumumba's transfer to a place where everyone knew he was going to die. Yeah, and it, and it came after uh, excruciating torture uh, that, that you detail. And one of the things that, that struck me about the book was just kind of how little I knew about uh, Patrice Lumumba going, going into it. Uh, up until practically just before he becomes prime minister, almost he's uh, an apolitical a guy. Uh, he uh, is a beer salesman, like one of the most popular <laughs> beer salesmen in the city, who then kind of actually recruits Mobuto into the push for independence. Mobuto was just kind of, was a journalist who didn't want to become involved in in politics, uh, and obviously that. You know that's that's it's such a you know poignant detail that he would have recruited his friend into politics, and then his his friend, uh, you know, eventually helps uh, usher usher in usher his own assassination. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know who who Lumumba was and and why uh, Congo would be in a situation where where so many people who were you know not that involved in politics would uh, come to the forefront as soon as kind of this rapid independence unfolds. Yeah, so rapid is the key word there. Um, the Belgians did basically no preparation for independence at all. In 1955, there was a, a, a Belgian academic who released a plan called the 30-year plan for the independence of the Belgian Congo. The idea being that by 1985, Congo would finally be ready for independence. Um, he almost lost his job because this was seen as way too fast and uh, you know aggressive a plan. Events intervened, and then suddenly, in the beginning of 1960, the Belgians realized they had to, had to offload their colony, that this was not a sustainable enterprise. So what that meant is that you got uh, the politicians in power after independence were had no experience being politicians because political behavior, political activity was outlawed before independence. So Lumumba is, um, as you mentioned, a beer salesman. He had been a postal clerk working for the colonial administration. Um, and it was in Leopoldville, the capital of the Congo, as a beer salesman that he really dove into politics headfirst and co-founded a political party, um, the National Congolese Movement. And then in elections, parliamentary elections held in the spring of 1960, his party won the most votes. And that's why he um, was asked to form a government and become prime minister. And I mean, the, the key thing about Lumumba that, that distinguished him was that he was incredibly charismatic. Even his bitterest foes recognized that, that he really had a way with words. He was also a, a skilled political organizer. And he was peddling a message that was appealing, which is that the Congo had to be strong, united, um, and 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 independent, truly independent after independence. 
Yeah, and this is a key point because, you know, as we saw with, you know, Arbonne's in Guatemala or Sukarno in Indonesia, there's this argument, especially coming from uh, the Dulles kind of faction of U.S. foreign policymakers, that these were Soviet satellite states, that, you know, you, you, you can't distinguish between a Lumumba and a Castro. Um, at, you do it at your own peril, essentially. But ideologically, Stuart, there are huge distinctions. And in fact, the hostility from the U.S. Uh, may have pushed people kind of closer to the arms uh, of the Soviets where they, they may not have ever wanted to go and in fact definitely didn't want to go, what's the kind of ideological approach that Lumumba was taking uh, to A, that kind of broader world conflict um, that you know certainly wasn't on the minds of, of his constituents in DRC on a kind of daily basis, uh, but also that sort of question of um, global communism or what in a, an industrial society the right way to run a government is? And one of the things that struck me in my research was how pro-American Lumumba was. So, for instance, he spoke of sending Congolese children to American schools, not Russian schools. He um, signed a multi-billion dollar deal with an American entrepreneur to hand over his country's mineral and uh, hydroelectric resources to an American. And when he traveled to Washington, D.C., um, in July 1960, he even called on the U.S. government to send American troops to the Congo. So none of that um, would suggest any sort of pro-Soviet orientation. It was only after he got rebuffed by the Americans for help that he, as you said, was driven into the arms of the Soviets and asked um, asked for military help. The, the irony here is that if, if you read the American cables at the time, the CIA, the State Department cables, it's full of talk about what the Soviets are up to in the Congo. After the Cold War, when the archives were, the Soviet archives were opened, it turned out there wasn't that much on the Congo in them at all because the Soviets didn't really care about the country. They viewed it as a faraway place where Moscow was never going to have much influence. It was a heavily Catholic country, not amenable to communism. And in 1960, the Soviet Union was not particularly powerful and didn't have a great ability to project power far abroad. Yet, from the American perspective, they saw they saw Soviet ghosts everywhere. And this is the one of the great tragedies of the story, I think, is that Lumumba was fundamentally misread by Washington, and they couldn't understand that he, in fact, wanted to stay neutral in the Cold War and, and simply wanted help putting his country back together and, and having his government and country survive. Yeah, you see so many cases of that around the world where the, the U.S., you know, firmly believed uh, that the Soviets were, you know, or orchestrating, you know, gigantic, you know, uh, insurgencies or, or political plots within a country, acted on those suspicions by, you know, assassinating people or otherwise taking action. And then only to find out later uh, that uh, either the Soviets were actually, you know, encouraging people uh, like in Indonesia not to engage in any type of uh, you know, violence or revolution, saying the conditions weren't right for it, or like you said, just just completely ignoring it, like with with you know no sense from the Soviets that they had any entry um, in into Congo. Uh, it, you, you write at one point that Kasavubu, the, who was kind of the more radical um, revolutionary, um, was at least a little bit more interesting to the Soviets. But even in that case, there wasn't much they could do. That you know, like, and Lumumba winds up as this. Such a tragic figure because he seemed to really believe the rhetoric that was coming, you know, from the United States about democracy and self determination, and from the United Nations. And 
you've got the, these moments where kind of he's reaching out to the United Nations saying, you know, it's, it's basically like calling the manager like, hey, you know, here are the values that the world says it upholds. I, I share those values. I'm trying to implement those values here in Congo. What's going on? Why am I being ousted? Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the, the role of the, of the UN and how this un unfolded? Hmm. Yeah, so, so in the height of, at the height of the crisis, Lumumba desperately calls on the United Nations for help. And the UN orchestrates this massive peacekeeping operation in the Congo, and really a remarkably fast operation. In a matter of days, there are thousands of troops on the ground in Congo. And the UN has never done anything like this before. It's um, you know supervised ceasefires and truces, but not been responsible for restoring order to an entire country. Um, Doug Hammarskjöld is the Secretary General of the UN at the time. He responds um, with alacrity and sets up this peacekeeping mission. But then very quickly, the um, UN peacekeeping mission doesn't do what Lumumba wants it to do, namely to reintegrate that breakaway province, the province of Katanga, which had announced its secession. So the UN goes into Congo imagining it can be a neutral mediator, but what it discovers pretty quickly is that there are actually important political choices that have to be made where it's going to anger one side or the other. So the UN um, refuses to go into Katanga at first, and Lumumba's extremely frustrated with this uh, fecklessness on its part, and it's then that he tries the Americans, gets rebuffed, and only after that does he go to the um, the Soviet Union. Mm. And can you can you talk can you talk real quickly about how the U.S. viewed this as a success? and what the implications were for its kind of regime change policy over the next uh, half century or more. Yeah, so in narrow Cold War terms, the anti-Lumumba operations that the CIA was undertaking, you know, funding his enemies, bribing um, Mobutu to take power, uh, organizing fake street protests against him, and so on, um, in narrow Cold War terms, this was a success because you got rid of a potentially pro-Soviet leader in Lumumba, never mind that that's an exaggeration, and you installed in his place a supposedly pliant American, pro-American dictator in Joseph Mobutu, never mind that he turned out to be far less pro-American than uh, American officials hoped. So in, in that, by that sense, it, it worked. If you broaden the scope even just a little bit, to include, for instance, the plight of the Congolese people, it becomes a failure. You have Mobutu in power for 30 plus years, nourished by American aid nearly to the very end, um, ran the country into the ground, extraordinary, extraordinarily kleptocratic, repressive, and so on. And his regime's implosion kicked off a massive civil war that killed millions. And also, um, I would argue, you didn't even need to get rid of Lumumba to have a country that was not communist and not pro-Soviet. There's no world in which Lumumba was about to, after having thrown off the Belgian colonial yoke, was going to turn around and allow his country to be dominated by the Soviets. Um, yet within the CIA, this was viewed as, as, as a success. Um, Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, got promoted for his work in the Congo. Um, he won at least one award for it. And then throughout the rest of the Cold War, as you know, there's this pattern of yet more instances where the CIA is intervening on behalf of a friendly tyrant and against the wishes of the democratic uh, impulse of the broader population. So this, this was not something that was invented in Congo, but I would argue it was really perfected and most 
shown as a success, quote unquote, in Congo in 1960 and 1961, and would uh, be a pattern that would continue throughout the rest of the Cold War and arguably to this day. Mm. Yeah, and if people are watching the show out of order, they should go check out the uh, block we did on Imran Khan because to that point, uh, to this day, uh, there are still uh, sort of strategic approaches that in some ways mirror this. Maybe not exactly, but in some ways. Stuart, do you actually have thoughts on that before we wrap as to how this, you you do see that sort of creeping, that mentality continue to uh, sort of privately as we get reporting, but also in some ways it's it's almost a public stance of the U.S. government in certain cases that this is a mentality that makes sense. I mean, take the case of Africa today. If you look at U.S. policy on the continent, it's very much security heavy, counterterrorism focused. There's still this idea that the goal should be stability above all else and short-term stability above long-term stability. So you see um, across the Sahel, for instance, um, America having sort of supported uh, the building up the military institutions in various countries at the expense of civil institutions. So there's that tendency that continues. I think the broader lesson of 1960 and 1961 in the Congo is the, the danger of paranoia and that um, Americans were obsessed with what the Soviets were seemingly up to and invented all sorts of uh, apparitions in their head. And so the lesson is that your geopolitical rival is often not 10 feet tall, perfectly competent. And today you see a lot of hyperventilation about what China and Russia are up to in Africa. But if you actually sort of look at the facts and what's really happening, it becomes less alarming. If you like books like Devil's Chessboard and Chaos, you will like the Lumumba plot. Make sure to pick up a copy. Sure, Stuart, it makes a great holiday gift as well. Stuart Reed, author of the Lumumba plot. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. This is fun. Absolutely. We'll be back with more right after this. Well, Ryan, actually, there were a couple of developments that happened as we were taping the show this morning. One would be that Norman Lear passed away, uh, and I wanted to acknowledge that because it's a a huge sort of cultural development, um, and he he had so much influence and did so much to shape American political culture, American family culture. Uh, So very, very sad uh, to hear the news that Norman Lear passed. Did you big All in the Family fan? Uh, Yeah, that was great. Yes. Yes. You are meathead. R.A.P. That's right. Yeah. R.I.P. R.I.P. Norman Lear. Yeah. Uh, Incredible show. And the way that like Archie Bunker was supposed to be designed to be like a parody of of the worst of the impulses of kind of America's white working class and ended up becoming kind of a a hero rather than an anti-hero for for so many people. Very kind of foreshadowed the Nixon kind of resentment and uh, the the rise of the Reagan revolution. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. A hero, but also, you know, while people still laughed at his politics and people still laughed at his ignorance, um, but found the empathy. You've found a, that the capacity to sort of empathize with him um, in the, the sort of changing world and understand where he was coming from, while at the same time laughing at the ignorance in sort of uh, a way that was like, whoa, this is not okay, <laughs> which is, which that, is sort that, of interesting. Yeah, that might, that might be one that our younger viewers are just not familiar with. And I would encourage them, you know, just dive into YouTube. I'm sure you can find a bunch of those clips, search all yeah. in the family. It's, if you haven't it's a real seen win- it. It's a real window into the time. 
Yeah, I was going to say, if you haven't seen it and you're younger, it's going to be one of those things, if you watch a clip on YouTube, you're going to be like, this was on network television in prime time. <laughs> like, people said this stuff. Do people know what prime time is even anymore? So prime time was a thing, you know, so there were only a couple of channels uh, that you could watch, and those channels would produce uh, television shows, and in the entire country, tens of millions of people would sit down and at, at a particular time sit there and every week watch this show at a designated time not when they wanted to and not one after the other just just that one another thing that broke while we were taping uh, is that the federalist and the daily wire are actually being joined by the state of texas uh, in suing the state department sort of a kind of a similar to missouri v biden thing but suing the state department for censorship for its funding of uh through different initiatives uh groups that seek censorship. Uh, so using taxpayer dollars basically to censor, um, you know, news sites that are critical, journalism that's critical of uh, the administration, not just the Biden administration. This was happening during the Trump administration as well. So we'll obviously follow that story because my full-time job is at The Federalist. But I wanted to mention that as well, Ryan, because Missouri v. Biden has, uh, you know, gone all the way up. This is going to be a landmark. The Missouri v. Biden uh, is already in, you know, clearly going to be a landmark case about how the government is is able to sort of uh, exercise its powers over speech, over social media, over journalism. Uh, and, and this case is actually really testing that as well. It'll be inter interesting to watch. Um, and so less people think, by the way, that I was foisting my kind of left-wing agenda uh, on Emily. Emily is the one that suggested uh, that we have Stuart Reed to talk about the Lumumba plot. I'm glad that you did. Um, and I'll, I'll, be back in, I'll be back in Washington next week. Uh, looking forward to seeing everybody. Yeah, we're looking forward to that, Ryan. And if you're watching the debate tonight, remember there is a debate tonight. Uh, I will be carrying the coverage right afterwards on SiriusXM between uh, Megyn Kelly getting off the stage and getting back to her microphone on SiriusXM. So uh, you can tune in for that. I'll be on uh, the, the full uh, spin room show with her after that as well. But if you're looking for debate coverage between uh, the, the debate, I'll be over on SiriusXM channel 111. Uh, Ryan, any appearances for the book that people should be on the lookout for? Well, if you're in LA, you can come to Love It or Leave It tonight. I think that's like a pod save uh, in the pod save universe. That'll be tonight um, in in Los Angeles um, and a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, looking right. forward to getting back to regular work. Sounds great. Uh, we will see you all back here with Ryan in the studio next week. Have a great one, everyone. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.